feels a bit intimidating having these two things on either side. feels like they're going to take me out of the room if I say anything bad. Um, let's begin with a prayer, shall we, before we begin this new series in Habakkuk. Father God, as we uh, come to your word once again this evening, we pray uh, that as usual uh, you would speak to us uh, through it by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you and praise you that your word speaks to our hearts uh, even today, uh, so many thousand years after it's written. Lord, we praise and thank you that you want to change us and make us into new people and pray that you would do that this evening. Amen. Uh, you might want to have Habakkuk uh, chapter 1 open. If you closed your Bible from earlier on, I'm not going to tell you where it is. <laughs> it's after Nahum. It's on page 940. You know what it's like, don't you? You go away on holiday, as I've just been away on holiday, and you, you catch glimpses of the news. And every single summer, there's always some big major disaster that uh, it fills the headlines because there's uh, probably nothing else to report in terms of political events and things like that. This year, of course, it was the, um, the uh, floods in Pakistan and the, uh, the fires in Russia. And uh, uh, Alan's already mentioned it this evening, and Adrian mentioned it in the prayers this morning. 20 million people have been affected by those floods. Um, that really shocked me when Adrian mentioned it this morning. I hadn't, I hadn't even actually bothered to go to a newspaper to actually read in detail what was happening in that country. We're so hardened to such news, aren't we? You know, it's estimated that there's between 25 and 30 wars going on uh, in the world at any one time, but we only see a fraction of them in our press. Let's get more personal. Why do our loved ones get sick? As Alan's mentioned, uh, several in our congregation are suffering at the moment. Why do we lose our jobs, face uncertainty? Why do our pensions turn out to be worthless? Why? You know, if you're not a Christian here, um, then your why questions might lead you to conclude there is no God. There can be no God if there is so much suffering and pain in the world. But for most of us who are Christians, our why questions lead us not to ask, is there a God? But God, why don't you do something? Why don't you intervene? God, do you really care? Are you really powerful? Compared to where we, compared to where we were in, in Nehemiah, which we were studying uh, a few weeks ago, we're going back in time this evening to just before the exile from which Ezra and his companions returned. So Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah, living during the reign of a worthless king called Jehoiakim, towards the end of the life of Judah as an independent state. And as Habakkuk looked around him, he observed destruction, violence, strife, conflict, and wrong all around him, verse 3. And he lived in constant fear of an invasion by the Babylonians, which would finally destroy his country, and see the capital city reduced to ruins. His why questions were to do with these big historical events. What was happening to the world? What was happening to the nation? But we also face why questions in our personal history, don't we? And they also lead us to pray, as Habakkuk prays in verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? You see, if all believers face the same why questions, then with Habakkuk, Habakkuk, we face 
the same mysterious ways of God, don't we? You see, Habakkuk grapples with the mystery of God and identifies, I think, three problems which we still face today and which I might call God's surprising apathy, God's surprising answers, and God's surprising allies. So three words beginning with A there, so you won't be surprised that we're going to look at those in more detail. So beginning with God's surprising apathy. Verse 2. We already read it. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? You do not save. Verse 3. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Verses 3 and 4. There is destruction and violence. The law is paralyzed. Wicked men are prevailing. Justice is being perverted. And yet it appears that God simply cannot be bothered. God's a teenager in the morning. God's an employee worn down by years of lack of appreciation and encouragement. God can simply not be bothered. Is that what we feel about God sometimes? Habakkuk, here in chapter 1, clearly did. He was surprised. He was even indignant at God's apparent apathy. After all, he was expecting the imminent destruction of his country. What had happened to all of God's promises to the Jews? God was supposed to make them more numerous than the sands in the desert. They were to be a blessing to other nations. They were to live in this land flowing with milk and honey. But they were on the verge of obliteration by a foreign power. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? We feel it today, don't we? With the growth of militant Islam, increasing secularisation of every European country, or so it seems. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help? And we see it in our personal lives. The failure to have a baby. The rebellion of children who we love very much. Failure to find a job which satisfies us. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help? In contrast, Habakkuk's second problem is about God's surprising answers. Perhaps you've been here, praying for something, desperately wanting God to act, and finally you sense that God is going to do something. Verse 5, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. This sounds good. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Sounds even better. What amazing work of salvation is God God going to do? What amazing answer to prayer is he going to give us? What blessing is he going to bestow? Verse 6, I'm raising up the Babylonians. Wait a minute, what's this? The ruthless, impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places that are not their own. No, Lord, that, that, that can't be it. That can't be the answer. But that was God's surprising answer to Habakkuk. Soldiers, horsemen, violence, invasion, captured cities. The people who were supposed to be as numerous as grains of sand in the desert were about to become as numerous as like prisoners being picked up like grains of sand. Probably many of us have received surprising answers from God sometimes. Surprising, unwanted answers from God sometimes. Sometimes we later on come to understand why God did what he did. We can see why God didn't answer our immediate prayers. But other times, unexpected answers simply remain a mystery. We never get to understand. Habakkuk's third problem was God's surprising allies. Verse 11 makes this clear. You see, these Babylonians who sweep past like the wind and and go on, they're violent, guilty men. They're also idolatrous pagans. It says their own strength was their God. They were no friends of God. 
And God was apparently going to ally himself with this pagan, violent, idolatrous nation and allow them to swoop down on the nation of Judah and devour them like a vulture. Why, O Lord? It's interesting, isn't it? Do you remember the the volcanic cloud, the cloud of dust uh, a few months ago, which brought all the flights over Europe to a standstill for several weeks? It brought serious discomfort and, 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 um, and cost to many people and many industries. And yet the event caused many people to actually reflect on, on how fragile Western society actually is and how, in fact, human beings cannot control the environment around them. And perhaps it's fairly easy to conclude that God did allow, uh, did ally himself with such an event to actually cause people to reflect on their lives, to cause people to reflect on what is truly important in life. But could it be that God allowed communism, for example? Did God ally himself with wicked people like Stalin to bring about greater good in the, in the long term? Could it be that God allows terrible events like climate change, tsunamis, all this flooding in Pakistan to achieve some greater purpose in the world? Why, O oh Lord? Verse 13 says, Why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Why do you allow wicked foes and enemies to catch the righteous in their dragnet until nations are destroyed without mercy? Verse 17. As they sacrifice to their idol and celebrate their means of living in luxury and enjoying the choicest food. Verse 16. Where's the justice in that? Why, O Lord, do you keep such surprising allies? How can a God who is holy allow and even use such wickedness? So here are the problems of Habakkuk. And they're problems for all of us, uh, thoughtful believers, aren't they? Why is God so apparently apathetic? Why doesn't he do something? Why does God give surprising, unwanted answers to us sometimes? Why does God use these apparently surprising, wicked allies? Yes, we could simply conclude and stop the sermon here and say, well, God is mysterious. But is it enough to leave it there? Well, it wasn't for Habakkuk. Firstly, because he also wants to see how easily God can be misunderstood. In other words, we think we've broken the mystery. We think we've understood, but actually we haven't at all. So Habakkuk chapter 1 shows us how God can be easily understood by careless religious people, people in the world, and even by the prophet himself. So firstly, in verse 5, God can be misunderstood by careless religious people. Look at the nations and watch. See what I'm going to do, God says. You won't believe it, even if you were told. You see, even good Jews who attended the temple and religious ceremonies, even those who listened to the preachers of their day and the law being read, they wouldn't believe, they won't believe it because they simply misunderstand God and his nature. Secondly, God is misunderstood by the world. Verse 11, the Babylonians thought their victories were down to their own strength. Their strength was their God. They couldn't see that they were just pawns in God's almighty game. God would grant them success and God would take it away again. They'd misunderstood the nature of Judah's God. And God also was misunderstood, perhaps, by the prophet himself. Verse 2, O Lord, you do not listen, you do not save, you tolerate wrong. Verse 13, you are silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. So it's not enough simply to say that God is mysterious. We need to add that God can also be easily misunderstood. But is it enough to leave it there? Well, not for Habakkuk. Because what Habakkuk now does with his why questions is he takes us back to some right basic principles about God. 
So look at verse 12. And we find in verse 12 six basic principles that we need to apply about God and apply to our why questions. Firstly, God is the self-existing, eternal I am. O Lord, begins Habakkuk's cry in verse 12. Whenever you see Lord written in those small capital letters in the Old Testament, it's translating the word Jehovah or Yahweh, the proper name of God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I am. God said to Moses, I am. In the sense he is, I am, in the sense that he exists, regardless of whether the world exists, regardless of whether we exist, or regardless of whether we believe in him or not, God exists. He simply exists within himself. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, within one. You see, in a sense, that begins to put our why questions into perspective. He didn't need the world or human beings in order to exist himself. He wasn't lacking anything because at one time we didn't exist. He was complete. He enjoyed relationship within himself. But that didn't stop him creating us because he longed for interaction and relationship with us, his people. So his ends with us are never self-seeking or self-serving. Whatever why questions we come up with, we can be sure that God is not simply trying to protect himself. He exists without us or with us. He is Lord, Jehovah, I am. Secondly, Habakkuk reminds us that God is eternal. O Lord, are you not from everlasting, he says. We need to remember that God looks at things from eternal perspective. You see, we tend to have difficulty looking beyond next week, don't we? Certainly few of us look beyond our own own lifetime for answers to long-term questions. What to us appears to be years and years of God's apathy may simply be a pause for breath in God's eternal horizon. Thirdly, God is almighty. O rock, cries Habakkuk in the fourth line of verse 12. The rock, it's strong and unmoving, it protects and it shelters. And whilst we look for a certain answer, God's strength might actually be applied in holding back a worse evil that we know nothing about. God is our rock. Fourthly, God is in control. In line three, he appoints. As we know from our series on Nehemiah and Jeremiah 29, God appointed the Babylonians for a period of 70 years, after which the Persians took over and allowed the people to return to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the walls and the temple. So no matter who God uses, he is always in full control. He hires and he fires the most influential people in the world according to his will in order to achieve his purposes. Fifthly, God is holy. My God, my holy one. See, Habakkuk knows it. He spells it out in verse 13. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. See, he knows that this absolute purity, absolute holiness, which is God, can never associate with sin can never fully align themselves to sin in that sense. Light has nothing to do with darkness. God and evil are polar opposites. Anything unjust or cruel is far removed from the character of God. God can never be party to any injustice. So why does God apparently have these allies? Where Habakkuk, where he's sitting, in his time and space, he doesn't know. But he senses that there is more to come, perhaps a greater purpose or, or a just judgment of those people. 
something as yet unseen which will satisfy God's holiness. As we read earlier on in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am given to this complaint. He knows there is more to come. In the words of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, history follows a divine plan with a divine timetable and it serves a divine kingdom. A kingdom that sometimes we know nothing or very little about. We ask these questions, don't we? Where would the Chinese church be today without persecution in the past? Where would the English church be without the pain and the danger involved in the Reformation several centuries ago? Where would we be as individuals if we had not had the trials and the suffering which have formed our character to make us what we are today? And finally, the last principle is that God is faithful. Verse 12 says, we will not die. It's the language of the covenant. No matter matter what happens to the people of God, a a remnant will be saved. Although we may face all kinds of trials and devastation in our lives, we commit all things to God, believing that he is faithful and we will be preserved. You see, and ultimately, in in all of this, all of these why questions, which are undoubtedly difficult and difficult to talk about, we follow the example of Christ, who had a, an equally unfathomable why question to ask and to have answered. He might have asked, why do I have to die? Why do I have to become sin on behalf of all these people? Martin Lloyd-Jones said again, he said, Jesus knew that his father could have delivered him out of, out of the hands, not only of the Jews, but of the Romans also. He could have commanded 12 legions of angels and escaped. But if he was to be made sin, and sin was to be punished in his body, it meant that he must be separated from the Father. That was the problem. And the Son of God was faced with the greatest perplexity of his human life on earth. The one thing from which he shrank was separation from the Father. But what did he do? Precisely what the prophet did. He prayed and said in Matthew 26, he said, My Father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, he didn't understand the problem. He didn't understand the situation. But he took it to God and he staked his very life, his very purpose, his very mission, on believing that his Father was Lord, that he was eternal, that he was almighty, that he was in control, he was holy, and he was faithful. But the question for us tonight then, is not only will we apply these basic principles to our why questions that all of us have, but also if you're not yet a Christian, as I said at the beginning, then according to Acts 13, there is a different question. And that is the question that is, will you believe that God has already done a much greater and more relevant thing for you than simply answer those why questions? When we're doing Christianity Explored and those sort of courses, we often get people who want to ask all sorts of why questions, why suffering in the world. And sometimes they get beyond that to think about deeper things. But sometimes they just get stuck there. But God has already done something through Jesus, which Habakkuk could have known nothing about and yet has already met your deepest personal need. Turn me to Acts 13. It's on page 1108, just to finish.
Acts 13 and verse 38. See, here is uh, Paul delivering a sermon in the synagogue at Presidian Antioch. In verse 38 he says, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified, made right, from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. If you just stop there a moment, you need to reflect that the death of Jesus required God to be apathetic. It required God to allow his son to go to the cross and to die. It required God to give some surprising answers. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying those prayers, the answer came back, Son, you will not be saved from the pain of complete separation from me. But you will be raised again on the third day. And the death of Jesus required God to keep some pretty unsavoury allies as well, corrupt Roman governors, dishonest Jews, and fickle crowds. And yet that single act of God has brought all of us here, who know Jesus, forgiveness for our sins, and a new relationship with God. So Paul continues, he says, Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And then he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. There was this great news. Jesus had come. He had achieved forgiveness of sins. He had achieved justification when the law of Moses had failed. And yet there were scoffers and people who would not believe. After the sermon, there was great excitement in that synagogue. The synagogue was full to the brim the next Sabbath. But after that, the Jews rebelled and they rejected the message. Only the Gentiles believed. What will you do? Will you remember these basic principles about God? Or if you're not yet a Christian, will you believe that forgiveness of sins can be yours if you just believe in Christ? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, all of us have questions on our minds, questions that we uh, have reflected on early on during this service, things that we'd want to ask you if we were to be able to meet you face to face. Lord, we can ask you those questions, but sometimes we don't get the answers we expect. Sometimes it appears you do nothing. Help us, Lord, to remember who you are and what your character is. Help us to remember that you are faithful to us. And Lord, We all recognise also that we've sinned before you, we've fallen short of the standards that you expect of us. We praise and thank you that you have brought forgiveness to us. And Lord, if there's anybody here tonight, Lord, I pray that they would seek your son Jesus and come to him and ask for forgiveness of their sins and put their trust and faith in you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.